This is an AMI podcast. I'm Joyita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. Canadians are being asked to flatten the curve to slow the spread of COVID-19 and reduce the load on our healthcare system. In many places in Canada, our healthcare system was already stretched before the pandemic. Alarmingly, even a modest spike in COVID-19 cases could completely overwhelm us. If hospitals become overburdened and under-resourced, we may have to make unpalatable choices about who does and does not get access to life-saving care. Looming over this question is the specter of discrimination and exclusion. Quite possibly, marginalized people, like the disabled or the homeless, might find themselves triaged out. Put concisely, which lives will matter? Today, we discuss the impact of COVID-19 triage on people with disabilities. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. If you do hear some ambient noise in the background, it's because we are all doing our part at AMI-audio to practice social distancing. Therefore, this show and all of our other daily live programming is being produced and hosted from people's homes. I want to remind you that if you'd like to keep up with information about COVID-19, we've assembled content from all of our daily live shows, The Pulse, of course, as well as now with Dave Brown and Kelly and Company. And all of that information can be found in one spot, which is ami.ca forward slash COVID-19. Today's topic is a complicated issue. We're trying to aim for an informational show, and I'm trying to set up the topic a little bit here so we are all hopefully on the same page. So the province of Ontario and other provinces in Canada have to grapple with some tough questions. When we look at the resources we have at our disposal, critical care beds in hospitals, ventilators, and ask themselves, what if we become overwhelmed? Many provinces have developed guidelines to triage patients, to try and make assessments about which patients would be most likely to benefit from intensive care and which patients may not benefit quite as much. What this has meant for people with disabilities who are quite concerned is that people with disabilities might end up at the bottom of the barrel with few options, fewer recourse, and a lack of prioritization of the health and well-being of people with disabilities during COVID-19. It's something that I have admittedly given some thought to, and I was quite concerned about it myself. So are my guests today. I am joined by two guests on the program, Professor Roxanne Mikidiak from Osgood Hall Law School, who is also the director of the Disability Law Intensive Program at York University, and Professor Trudeau Lemons, who is from the Faculty of Law and the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto, my old alma mater. A very warm welcome to both of you. Thank you for being on the program. Pleasure. Thank you. I want to set up the topic a little bit. So I was hoping that one of you could explain to us what a triage is in the context of a pandemic. Um, We typically understand triage to be 
the allocation of um, treatments or the allocation of scarce resources to patients according to a set of criteria or a set of priorities, typically in order to achieve a, a particular goal. And in the context of a pandemic setting, that goal is often to make the most efficient use of the available resources that we have to maximize the number of survivors. Sometimes in context of extreme health care crises, such as a pandemic, one of the goals that will also be outlined can also include the survival of essential health care personnel. And that was a, a goal that was outlined, for example, in the Canadian uh, Medical Association's draft protocol as well. So in the context of Canada, why did our provinces feel that they needed to perhaps implement some guidelines like this? Yes, it's clear that um, uh, the uh, pandemic um, highlights the need for for triage decision making. Um, but this is not a new issue. Uh, so since we had SARS in uh, Canada, particularly, uh, there have been various experts who have been pushing and actually have done quite some work on pandemic preparedness, including triage policy making. Uh, I think here of colleagues at the Centre for Bioethics at the University of Toronto who have also uh, the st- stakeholder meetings who have worked with the World, World Health Organization about priority uh, setting and uh, pandemic preparedness. It's unfortunate, though, that the governments and the um, provincial and federal and the professional organizations have not been immediately uh, trying to put something in place way before the uh, COVID-19 basically hit us mm-hmm. uh, with, a, with a vengeance and quite uh, by surprise. Huh? We shouldn't have been surprised, but the, the, the triage policy should have been in place and particularly have been publicly debated in, with stakeholders such as disability rights organizations, elderly rights organizations, uh, so that we would have had a, um, a very detailed uh, uh, discussion about what would be the, the appropriate uh, uh, way in which these triage decisions would be, could be made. But just to be clear, a triage in and off of itself isn't a bad thing to have. Granted, there are criticisms, but isn't it better, better for the public overall to have a triage guideline or protocol in place? Yes, I think that that is generally regarded as, as something good to have in place. Of course, we would have um, to think very carefully about what the content right, of that triage is going to be. Yes, we may have situations of shortage where doctors feel uh, torn between uh, in their duties towards several patients, and they when they are not able to survive to us provide the uh, level of care that they would normally provide to all of these patients. So, the on an individual level, these decisions are very very difficult, very demanding, and if you allow individual decisions to make these individual physicians to make these decisions on the fly. Uh, you also risk uh, allowing for more conscious or unconscious biases to influence the, the decision-making process. So, yes, it's a good thing to have a policy in place with a with decision-making uh, structures that are clear and that provide some objectivity to the process. We're essentially talking yeah. about rationing existing medical supplies, but 
it does seem like we were caught by surprise, and not least because we saw what happened in Italy, a place with very similar resources to ours when it comes to critical critical care, and yet Canada didn't seem to want to ramp up its production of ventilators, didn't seem to want to add as many critical care beds as were needed. Don't either of you feel that perhaps one aspect of this conversation that we aren't really getting to is the supply question? The supply question is an important one, um, indeed, but we have to make it clear to uh, listeners that uh, at this point in time, it doesn't actually even seem to be the case that we will in Ontario have, uh, in the immediate future, uh, any shortage of ventilators. So um, we are currently in a position to say that these triage policy, our policies are not, will not be implemented or will not be uh, need to be used immediately. Um, could it be important to ramp up uh, the production of ventilators? Yes, we see already, for example, that Alberta has been sending ventilators to Quebec where there is more of a, of a concern that uh, they may run out of ventilators in some hospitals. I would also want to add, though, that um, we have to put this in perspective. The ventilator, uh, the use of ventilators, uh, particularly even when it comes to COVID-19, is a measure to help people survive when they're really, really doing very badly. Uh, the chances of survival um, of somebody who needs to be ventilated uh, in the context of COVID-19 of COVID are quite limited. And so uh, when you talk about do we need to ramp up the production of ventilators, I would say yes, but we also particularly need to implement measures to avoid that people even get to that stage because when they get at that stage, it, it will often... Uh, I mean, so the mortality risk and the and the complications, the health complications following ventilator support are very serious, and we want to avoid these. And for example, uh, there is increased evidence, for example, that um, that when we more adequately monitor how patients are doing when they're infected with COVID-19, it will often be possible to avoid that they get to the stage where they will be. Where, where they will need ventilation. So increased testing, increased monitoring of how people are doing will be probably more be more important than, than actually having ventilators available. I think Trudeau's touched on something really important that in some ways the question doesn't get up in the context of COVID-19, which is to suggest that um, for some people with disabilities, well, for many people with disabilities and for others, of course, uh, once you get to the point of actually requiring ventilation and having to make those kinds of triage decisions, we are almost too late, right, in some cases. So that what we actually need to be doing is taking a look at um, measures to actually be improving people's health and keeping them safer before getting to that point. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of people's actual um, exposure, though, to COVID-19, persons with disabilities are actually, in some cases, at increased risk. And we actually also need to be aware of those contexts. So people who are living in congregate settings, for example, people who need, people living in institutions, right? People with disabilities who require personal um, support workers or personal assistance, right, who have no choice but to need people who are working closely with them. So we need to make sure that um, as a society that our policies and our practices are such that we are preventing infection 
in those contexts and that we're taking all the care that we need to make sure that people with disabilities who are at more risk are not actually being exposed to infection in those contexts. As we head towards the break, I just want to ask you the key question here, which is when we look at draft guidelines for clinical triage, what are some of the broad criteria that are being made use of to decide who gets care and who does not? So there are different uh, cri- different policies use sometimes different criteria for access, but generally, uh, certainly the draft Ontario guidelines and the uh, framework which was put forward by the Canadian Medical Association, uh, the most important criteria there is uh, risk of mortality. So... Um, all of these triage policies will introduce some level of exclusion on the basis of mortality risk. Uh, who is likely to survive with the ventilator and who is likely uh, not to survive even if we provide uh, a ventilator? In the Ontario draft guidelines and in many other guidelines, um, different scenarios of shortages are identified. For example, in the Ontario guidelines, we see uh, that at the first level of shortage, when we start seeing a beginning of um, of problems with access to ventilators, people who are at a more than 80% risk of mortality, uh, so who are very unlikely to survive, they have, they have a limited survival chances, even with the ventilator, will be excluded from access to ventilators. Mm-hmm. In a second scenario, we will see um, people being excluded from uh, who have a more than 50% predicted mortality risk. And the third scenario, the most serious scenario of, of shortage, would lead to an exclusion of people who have a 30% risk of mortality or more, meaning that you can have people with 60% chance of survival uh, who will uh, still be excluded from uh, access to a ventilator. So that's the most devastating uh, situation that we would have. Um, the problem with... Um, uh, the mortality uh, assessment is, or, or the question about mortality as a as an access criteria is, that we uh, have also a lot of policies that go way beyond uh, looking at whether a person will likely survive the treatment in the ICU or the treatment um, that is required for which the ventilator is required, namely the acute infection by COVID-19. And so um, if you start going beyond the ICU survival, um, you are asking the question, what other criteria can we use to decide who has preferential access when they have the same, say, the same level of mortality risk? Uh, Will we be looking at age, uh, giving preferential treatment to younger people? Will we be looking at life years left? Um, Will we be looking at what whether people uh, who are infected provide essential services and may be needed to keep society running or the healthcare system running. So when we start looking beyond the ICU, more ethical questions arise, and particularly when we start using life years left uh, as a criterion or age as a criterion, uh, people with disabilities, people who, people who are older, so the elderly, or people who are more impacted by social determinants of, of health risk being disadvantaged disproportionately in that particular system. Professor Lemons, I want to revisit the ethical question with you 
in that I am led to believe that we may have to make some decisions about whose lives are valued when we start to look at some of these triage protocols. Am I right to be concerned? I think you're right to, to be concerned that with some of the triage policies that we've seen, that they seem to emphasize too much some uh, notion of um, formal equality that doesn't sufficiently take into consideration the fact that people with disabilities, people who are elderly, people who are impacted by otherwise by social determinants of health are additionally disadvantaged when it comes to decisions about whether they will have access to uh, potential life-saving uh, uh, technologies. You look at the guidelines that have been developed in Canada, uh, or at least the ones that we have had access to, for example, the Ontario Draft Guidelines, they're quite good in the sense that they are not explicitly excluding people uh, with uh, particular disabilities from having access to uh, life-saving technologies. They, and they contain certain broad principles, ethical principles, such as the principle of utility, proportionality, and fairness. But uh, what we have put forward in a commentary that we recently wrote is that we think that they should more explicitly include some some notion of um, of substantive equality and um, and uh, inclusion and promotion of the interests of people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. Professor McKidiak, I'd like to bring you in here because, uh, you know, Professor Lemons pointed out that people with disabilities aren't being specifically excluded, but perhaps we need to do more to ensure that they're not disadvantaged. And I'm led to believe that the disability and the duty to accommodate provisions in the law are not only still in place, but perhaps they become doubly important now more than ever to ensure that people with disabilities get an adequate quality of care. I wonder if you could operationalize that for us. In the busy hospital setting, in the middle of a pandemic, what does the duty to accommodate look like? As we know, um, the duty to accommodate often requires additional resources, right? That in order to achieve the goal of substantive equality for a person with a disability. So it means that we in, in other circumstances, it means, for example, that we have to build ramps. We have to provide information in alternative formats. We have to provide attendant care or we have to call out transit stops, right? Those are all things that we have to do in order to achieve substantive equality. They are forms of accommodation. They do require additional resources to achieve inclusion. The fact that somebody who has a disability and who may require the use of a a ventilator for their benefit, who in fact has it has been determined will benefit from its use. But the fact that they may actually require its use for a little bit longer, right, for a few more days than somebody who may not have, say, the underlying disability that that individual has should not be in my view, a reason for denying that individual under even conditions of triage access to that ventilator in order, it should actually be considered to be an an accommodation in order for them to have equal opportunity to benefit from that treatment. So that would be 
one example that I could give you. Another example that I, I cited, the provision of information in alternative formats um, or the use of sign language, right, for example, would be something that should always be provided with respect to access to healthcare treatment. That, of course, does need to go on in under conditions of pandemic as well. And people with disabilities are very concerned that they are not receiving in hospitals, but even public health service announcements, for example, in alternative formats so that they are well informed about what their options are. They're not well informed, actually, about what they need to do in order to protect themselves from infection. And then also to know what their options are in situations where they are infected about what their their treatment options are, for example. So that's something else. So, you know, there are duties to accommodate that may be specific to triage context, but other duties to accommodate that apply with respect to healthcare treatment more generally that will continue to apply. I think it's a good place here to turn our conversation to recommendations. And one of the recommendations that you make is to explicitly include language that says that there is a commitment to prevent discrimination. And I've seen so many policies that have written into them provisions to avoid or prevent discrimination, but very few people actually understand what that means. So would you also recommend training or the provision of resources so that frontline staff understand how best to avoid and ameliorate discrimination? Yes, that would be um, certainly important. Um, One of the concerns that you see coming out, certainly from the disability uh, community, is that really in the healthcare system in general, there are often ableist presumptions that influence decision-making about uh, whether certain forms of care will be offered even to people with disabilities uh, based on on a well-intended but wrong perception of, well, you know, this, this person has no quality of life or has a diminished quality of life, it's not worth it to provide this this form of intrusive uh, form of treatment. So um, sensitivity training, training, inclusion in medical uh, training and, and nursing training, a sensitivity to disability rights concerns, to quality of life concerns uh, would be very important. But I would say the most important thing remains, so, so, so I think an explicit statement that, that, that commits uh, triage, triage committees to, to think about these issues and to really try to compensate for their own potential conscious or unconscious biases would be very mm. important. The most important thing would remain that we should look at these uh, triage policies from the perspective of only focusing on, on short-term survival, namely that they are not allowing these kind of ableist presumptions influence decision-making in the long run when we when we allow committees to look at well how many years are left for these people, uh, which in and of itself would always disproportionately disadvantage many people with disabilities and chronic illness. I am speaking to Professor Roxanne McKidiak from York University and Professor Trudeau Lemons from the University of Toronto. We're having a conversation today about triage protocols and guidelines that might be implemented in the worst case scenario under COVID-19 and what the impact might be on people with disabilities. One of the criteria that you're saying we ought to look at is remaining focused on short-term 
quality of life and short-term needs rather than bringing in years of life. Are there other criteria, non-discriminatory criteria, evidence-based criteria that you would like to see brought into the protocol? I think the, the short-term survival is key. Uh, the Ontario draft policy does emphasize the need to look at short-term survival, although they go a little bit beyond, they seem to go beyond survival of the uh, ventilator treatment. And they also include certain broad exclusions based on specific diseases such as Parkinson's, ALS, uh, progressive cognitive decline, which in general are likely associated with higher mortality rates when you use a ventilator in those populations. But um, from a discrimination law perspective, broad categorizations are always a concern uh, in the sense that it remains important to look at individual people and their individual assessment, the individual uh, basis of, of, uh, uh, or the individual circumstances in which they find themselves. So I would say short term, also individualizing risk assessments and not to easily presume that people who are suffering from particular chronic conditions um, will not benefit from having ventilation treatment would be important. Something else that we have seen in some of the guidelines too suggests that there's an assumption that people who require some kind of support or accommodation, so whether it may be a an attendant of some sort or who require, again, um, resource-intensive in, resource accommodations after treatment are somehow precluded from receiving that treatment. That should also be a red flag and should also then be a condition pursuant to which we would want to prevent discrimination, if you like, so that anybody who requires accommodations during treatment or after treatment should not be a basis for deprioritizing that individual. I really appreciate that you both joined us to have such an important conversation with us. I'd have loved to keep talking, but we are almost out of time. Uh, Professor Lemons, Professor McKidiak, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Those were my guests today, Professor Roxanne McKidiak from York University um, and also Professor Trudeau Lemons, who is from the Faculty of Law, cross-appointed to the Dalalana School of Public Health from the University of Toronto. If you missed any of our conversation, you can always find the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. I want to wrap up by saying that while these are broad-based conversations that we need to have on a policy level, I think as ordinary people, you and I need to have some tough conversations at home with our loved ones about how we would like to receive end-of-life care, whether we would like to be put on a ventilator if the worst should come to happen. I don't normally like to leave off on a down note. I like to leave us an optimistic note. But I wanted to make the point that there are necessary but difficult conversations ahead for all of us. With that said, I do want to go back to the point about putting equity and the value of each and every human life, regardless of ability, 
at the center of that conversation. Whether that's a conversation we have at our dinner table or a conversation we have at the command table on the provincial level, we must work from a place of inclusion and we must work from a place of social justice. And of course, you know what they say, you have to be an optimist of the soul, but a pessimist of the internet, of the intellect. Well, on that note, um, I'd like to thank our guests today, Professor Trudeau Lemons, as well as Professor Roxanne Mikidiak. I'd like to thank you for listening. The Pulse is produced by Andrika Delanroll. Nasreen Abdel-Majid is stepping in for Sam Robinson, as technical producer. Andy Frank is our manager of AMI-audio, with special thanks to Paula Deneen, supervisor, AMI-audio technical. Once again, thanks a lot for listening, and we'll talk to you all very soon. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.